It's the JT and Looney Podcast, episode 94. We're powered by Bet Online. It's great to be partnered up with Bet Online. If you're not into the sports wagering business, if you don't gamble on sports, get off your ass and get to Bet Online. Add gambling to your life. Whether it's live bets during games or futures, or you want to uh, maybe just uh, bet on the game that's going on tonight, Bet Online has all the latest odds, news, and information for all your online sports betting needs. You don't need to get a sp- on the Spirit Airlines to fly to Vegas and then have them cancel on you. No, you just go to betonline.ag. Uh, use your mobile device if you want, or you can use your home PC and join and get 50% welcome bonuses on your first deposit just for being friends with JT and Looney. It's really cool. So if you put down $100 in your first deposit, they'll give you 50 Then you're in business, baby. So before the next big game, head on over to BetOnline and start playing today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. <laughs> when you're down in Acuna, you ain't up to being alone. Dusty Hill died. Vocals, bassist, Z, Z, top. My first introduction to big boy music in life was Z, Z, top. If you go back into the hot tub time machine when I was a little boy, upstate New York, the Finger Lakes, every summer, God, it was beautiful, for about five years, age 9 to 13, 10, 11, 12, 13, age 8 to 13, five summers, we spent all summer, in the Finger Lakes. And when I was 12, I looked older. And there was a whole bunch of cool guys and girls who used to hang out down by the big dock. Camp Barry. Cuker Lake, upstate New York. And so I would lie because I had an early puberty and I could bench press you know, 150 when I was 12. So I could pass off that I was 15, which I would do and smoke cigarettes with the big boys and girls and hang out all day. What's funny is they would wonder where I went at night because they were partying and drinking all night. and Who knows what they were smoking? And I could hear them partying down by the lake. And I was home because I was actually a child. (laughs) And they thought I was a mystery man because I would always disappear at night. I disappeared at night because I wasn't really 15. I was 12. It also exposed me to the uh, the evils of lying because I remember getting back home in September. And then, you know, you'd play at the park or you'd play on the CB radio and somebody would say, how old are you? And I had to pause for a second. I'd say, oh, my God, yeah. I, I, I'm only 12. <laughs> They're saying I was... 15 all summer. So Billy Crocker, Sayer, New York. Billy was 17. His brother Bobby was 15. They turned me on to big boy music. ZZ Top and the album Fandango. And it changed my life because I just listened to kiddie music before that because I was a kid. And I liked the Dr. Demento songs and the one-hit wonders. I And I didn't run the kiddie music and... Partridge family and stuff like that because I was a child, but I was a blooming child and a muchacho. Perfect word for it in Spanish. They don't have a good word in English for when you're not a boy, but you're not a man. Those in between years. We have adolescent. Sounds kind of clinical, but so 
Billy Crocker, Sarah, New York. Shout out to Billy. Turn me on to big boy music. And ZZ Top and the album Fandango. And one side was live from Austin, which was unbelievable. And it's unbelievable that three men could make that much noise. This is a big loss. There's only three guys in that band. And now there's two. Dusty Hill, bassist for ZZ Top, dead at 72. Some say pass away. Kind of the first political correct term of our generation. Instead of someone dying, they pass away. He's dead. And that's too bad because that band turned me on to big boy music. And they, you know, if we had to send music into outer space to let extraterrestrials know what rock and roll sound like, you could pick ZZ Top. There are certain bands, the Rolling Stones, Queen, Led Zeppelin, the Beatles, ZZ Top. Well, you know right away, you hear three chords. You hear three seconds. It's like, name that tune. Three or four seconds, and you know. Even if you don't know the song, that's ZZ Top. That's Billy Gibbons on lead guitar. Just as good as Eddie Van Halen or anybody else you want to say is one of the greatest guitarists of all time. Who's ever on your Mount Rushmore of great guitarists? Now, Billy Gibbons is one of those guys, lead guitarist for ZZ Top, because... When you hear it, you know who it is. You know, when you hear, even if you hear Michael Jackson's Beat It, you know that guitar is Eddie Van Halen. It has a certain, there's a certain sound. There are certain guys, you know, Keith Richards with a lead guitar. You hear a few chords of a Rolling Stones song, and if it's a Rolling Stones song you've never heard, you still know it's a Rolling Stones song but you hear, before you hear Mick Jagger's voice because of those Keith Richards chords. Billy Gibbons and ZZ Top have one of those sounds. That's big boy music there. That's white boy music, yes. And it's country, it's rock and roll, and it's great. And, and one of the huge reasons for their huge success, <clears throat> uh, MTV, because they, they were smart enough. MTV didn't have much material when MTV first went on the air. Nat, 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 nat. When, Z's, when MTV went on the air, they didn't have very much stuff. Not, not very many bands made videos. And ZZ Top jumped right on it and made music to go to vid, with videos and videos to go with music. And they had that great, unique look with those beards that set themselves apart from, you know, from the typical rock and roll look of skinny guys with guitars and long hair and no shirts with a cigarette hanging out of their mouth. That wasn't ZZ Top. And if I had to go to a desert island, there was always that conversation that you have with friends, at least white boys do. If, with, <laughs> if you had to go to a desert island with three albums, what three would you take? And ZZ Top's Fandango would be one of those. I would take one side is live, the other side is studio music. And... It changed my life. It was Shangri-La when I got that album. I, Billy Crocker first played it for me. We went to the store to get beer, and he had the cassette in his car. And you know what Tush is, kid? And no, I did not. But I found out that day in the car with Billy. And one side of the album is, uh, yeah, is studio music. The other side is live music. And both sides 
are five out of five stars. So if you've never heard the album Fandango, I'm telling you, it's it's a it's a desert island album. It's one of the three I would take. What are the others? I changed my mind a lot because over the years I've thought, well, I, I probably shouldn't take three rock and roll albums. You should probably really uh, maybe take a rock album, a country album. I might take a Ronnie Millsap greatest hits. I love Ronnie Millsap. Huge fan of Ronnie Millsap. So I might take a Ronnie Millsap greatest hits. There's a stranger in my house. Smoked in mountain rain. Oh, man, he's good. Here's a fun fact. The guy who wrote most of Ronnie Millsap's greatest hits was a defensive tackle for the Cincinnati Bengals named Mike Reed. He's All-American at Penn State, All-Pro with the Cincinnati Bengals, but all he ever really wanted to be was a piano player. And he was a successful piano player in his own right. He did. He, he, one of the reasons why Ronnie Millsap became Ronnie Millsap was because of Mike Reed. Then Mike Reed at some point broke off and made his own albums and sang his own songs rather than have Ronnie take them all. But uh, the, the, the key behind Ronnie Millsap's success is tied to sports with Cincinnati Bengals defensive lineman Mike Reed. So that's pretty cool. So rest in peace, Dusty Hill. The man who turned me on to big boy music. So there's a, a trans athlete in the Olympics, male to female, who's participating in weightlifting. And all of a sudden, people who never had opinions on women's equality ever in their life, all of a sudden are worried about women's equality. and A level playing field for women. People who never worried one minute in their life, never watched women's sports, never cared about the Me Too movement, never cared about a level playing field for anybody, never cared about Black Lives Matter, never cared about gays or uh, the Me Too movement, never cared about uh, women's equality in the workplace, all of a sudden care about a level playing field for women. That's what bothers me about the people with opinions about this issue. So many of them, they're just uncomfortable with the trans issue. And so it's a cover for their disc. You know, there's nothing wrong with saying, I'm kind of uncomfortable with this. Don't couch it with some kind of noble level playing field argument for women. An argument that you've never made in your life for women something you've never really cared about, something you feared because you wanted the better job and the better pay. So it didn't really always matter that much to you. If you've never been a level playing field guy and you've never were really worried about a level playing field for others, for women, for minorities, don't start now with the Olympics and worry about a level playing field in the Olympics for women because you're worried about the trans, because you know, you're uncomfortable with the trans issue. Just say you're uncomfortable with the trans issue. You know, it, good people are uncomfortable with issues. Good people are uncomfortable with sex change issues or sexual orientation issues. It doesn't make them bigots or awful people. People are uncomfortable talking about race. It's kind of an American disease, but it's... Uh, 
so many people I know that are uncomfortable talking about race or never talk about race, but say they're tired of talking about race, never talk about race anyway, but they're tired of it. They're not even bad people. They're good people. I mean, they're choosing to be part of the problem and not part of the solution by saying that. But nevertheless, they're still good people. And you can still be a good person to be uncomfortable with this subject that seems to be talked about a lot that was never talked about when we were younger, the trans issue. So there are men becoming women and then succeeding at the Olympics, which is going to be very rare. How many people make it to the Olympics in the first place? What do you think? This is going to be a trend. Someone's going to seek out a sex change so they can win a silver so they can get endorsements. We're not going to get endorsements the way the bigotry is anyway. So what do we it's, it's worrying. We're worried the collective we about this micro issue. That's not really an issue. Really? Of all the things going on in the world. And, I, you know, that argument is sometimes annoying, too. We're allowed to be bothered by whatever we're bothered by. And we can all be bothered by several things at the same time and clutch our pearls over many things at the same time. But this is another, for, for me, I believe another pearl-clutching moment when we don't really have to be clutching our pearls. Especially if you've never cared before about a level playing field for women. And you've never cared about women's sports anyway. You've never cared about equal pay and all that stuff. Don't start now and couch your argument playing the level playing field card from the bottom of the deck just to, because you're uncomfortable with the trans issue. Just say you're uncomfortable with the trans issue. doesn't make you a bad person. A lot of people are uncomfortable with it. A lot of guys are uncomfortable with it, not because they're haters or not because they would... Uh, discriminate, but just because we have, we like our equipment and we like our clothes. And it's it's about far more than that. It's something happening internally. I realize that. Something far deeper inside people who believe they were born in the wrong gender that I'm probably incapable of understanding, but I can listen. And what's this? Something we should all do a lot more. We don't have to have a bullet in the chamber for every topic. And we don't have to debate the issues like we're in the World Wrestling Federation. We can debate issues and disagree with each other without gas cannon matches. And we can also uh, be real about it, too. And just say at times if you're not comfortable with an issue, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. Because a lot of times we don't have the information. We don't know enough about a lot of things. Here I am. That happens all the time to sports talk show hosts, but we have to talk anyway. But if, you, uh, if you're not comfortable with the trans athlete thing, but because it's about the trans, you can say that's what it's about. I'm, I'm not comfortable with that issue. I don't know how I feel about that yet. That's a better way of putting it than you're worried about a level playing field for women. Especially if you've never worried about that in your life and you've never watched the WNBA and you've never watched women's weightlifting and you've never watched women's college basketball or women's college final four. Then stop. Don't start worrying about a level play unveiled so you can take shots at trans people. 
I feel sorry for anybody who wants to wake up in the morning and say to themselves, how do I make like life difficult today for fill in the blank? How do I make life difficult today for immigrants? How do I make life difficult today for trans people? What kind of life is that? So my nephew calls me up on the phone uh, to preserve his anonymity. Let's say his name is Isaac. And Isaac says, Tio, he was originally a Spanish-speaking little child, so he calls me Tio. Tio in Spanish means Tio. <laughs> but in English, it means uncle. He says, Tio. I've got gonorrhea. You see, Isaac lives with his mom. He couldn't call his dad because getting a hold of his dad, getting a hold of the Pope would be easier than getting a hold of his dad. His father is not involved in his life. And because his father isn't involved in his life, that's an intimate detail that he probably wouldn't want to share with his father, so he called his T.O. And I said, oh, my God, Isaac, I've got 30 penicillin here at the house, something that I had that wasn't a venereal disease. And I would tell you if it was, big deal, but it wasn't. had a couple in college. Um, but I had 30 penicillin here, and I don't remember why. But I told Isaac, I'll bring it over. So he took the penicillin, and the gonorrhea went away. But then it came back. So Isaac went to a real doctor, and Isaac got to the doctor's office. He said, well, I came down with gonorrhea, and then my uncle prescribed me 30 days of penicillin, and so I took penicillin for 30 days, but, and the gonorrhea went away, but then it came back, doctor. And the doctor said, oh! Your uncle's a doctor. And Isaac said, no. Ploy. Money. Mayweather. So Floyd Mayweather fights Logan Paul, and it's a big circus, and it's a lot of fun. You know, and people are complaining that it's another black eye for boxing. Such a tired, lame cliche. And that it makes boxing look like a circus or a sideshow. What else has boxing ever been? And in addition to a sport that you don't play, <laughs> you don't play boxing. And those guys in there are putting their lives on the line for our entertainment. But it's always been a circus act. Boxing has always been a circus act. If you're listening to the sound of my voice, You've probably seen Butterbean fight back in the day, and it was so much fun in the 80s and 90s, and Butterbean was this big, fat monster that would knock out guys within seconds. And it was always a, a preliminary fight that you'd drink your Coronas and watch Butterbean fight while you were waiting for Tyson or Holyfield or Big George Foreman to fight. You'd get to see a little popcorn Corona circus act with Butterbane. And there's been other great ones. If we could go back in the hot tub time machine 
1923. Dateline, Shelby, Montana. Shelby, Montana was a growing mining town, oil town, banking town in the wild, wild west. And they wanted to bring publicity to their city of Shelby, trying to make it a metropolitan player. And how could they do that? You know, in the era of Babe Ruth. Well, we can't bring Babe Ruth here. He's a baseball player. But we can bring the popular heavyweight champion Jack Dempsey. Everybody loved Jack Dempsey. Oh, did the whites love their Jack Dempsey? He could knock you out with either hand. He was one of the most famous sports heroes in the country at the time, with a wink and a nod to Babe Ruth. It was Babe Ruth and Jack Dempsey. Back in the day, the heavyweight champion was usually the most popular and famous guy in America. So Shelby Montana Banks got together with Shelby Montana Chamber of Commerce, and they said, let's try to bring a heavyweight championship fight to our city. So the fight got signed. Jack Dempsey and Tommy Gibbons. And the fighters were worried about this city that they never heard of with big dreams. And so the fighters demanded on money up front and Shelby Montana Banks gave it to the fighters. And, you know, they also, because they, fighters had a lot of worries because it took a week to get there by train. They weren't going to fly at the time. Flying was not safe in 1923. So the city built on farmland, built an arena that could fit 22,000 people an outdoor stadium, mostly made of wood. And guys were out there for days and weeks and months, pounding nails, building that arena that would bring Shelby, Montana into the spotlight of the world. So they built that 22,000-seat arena, and the fighters showed up on that night, July 24th, 1923. No, July 4th. 1923, yeah, they did it on, to make it a patriotic thing, they did it on July 4th. And nobody came. <laughs> there were about 6,000 people who paid for tickets in that 22,000 capacity arena that they built on farmland in Shelby. So they just let people in. People just stampeded in and watched for free. As Jack Dempsey won a 15-round decision, and he and Tommy Gibbons got out of town, and the fight was an unmitigated disaster in terms of the banks, all four of the banks that pitched in, failed. And Shelby, Montana, really never got mentioned again from 1923 until this podcast. <laughs> People couldn't get there. You know, how Hollywood luminaries didn't know how the fuck to get to Shelby, Montana in 1923. You couldn't fly there. So that is the story about the circus that happened in Shelby, Montana. George Foreman fought five guys one in one night uh, in Toronto. That was a huge circus. Uh, Muhammad Ali fought a wrestler named Antonio Inoki. And if you want to go back in the hot tub time machine all the way back to Jack, the Jack Johnson days, Jack Johnson was heavyweight champion between 1908 and 1916, and he fought a, a professional wrestler back in the day. Uh, up until the 1970s in boxing, 
it wasn't rare to have a celebrity referee, not a real referee like Richard Steele or any of those guys. No, not a professional referee. Let's get it on. Nobody like that with real credentials to be a referee. They would have like former heavy, the mayor of the town. I think the mayor of Shelby, Montana was actually the referee in that uh, Jack Dempsey fight that I was talking about and boring you with. But also, the, the long count fight in Lewiston, Maine in 1965 between Muhammad Ali and Sonny Liston. The second fight in Lewiston, Maine. The birthplace of uh, the sideline reporter for Fox. Who's the sideline reporter for Fox with the nasally accent? Aaron Andrews. Aaron Andrews is from born and raised in Lewiston, Maine. That's why she talks like that. Anyway, 1965, Lewiston, Maine, and Muhammad Ali knocks out Sonny Liston in the punch, they say, couldn't have crushed a grape. And Jersey Joe Walcott was the celebrity referee <laughs> in that fight, and he screwed it up. And Liston was down for like 18 seconds, but Jersey Joe Walcott got confused with Ali clowning and dancing around in the ring and demanding that Sonny Liston get up. Joe Lewis was a celebrity referee right in through the 70s, many times in Madison Square Garden. Boxing has always had a circus element to it. We don't have to go far that far back to remind you about Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor, which was enormously successful. And Muhammad Ali, probably the greatest fighter of all time. Not probably. Bite my tongue. The greatest of all time. Muhammad Ali was a circus actor himself. And he stole his act from a guy named Gorgeous George, who was a professional wrestler. So the fight game has always had a circus element to it. And if anybody watched the smaller weights over the years in the 80s and 90s, there was Jorge Paez. Jorge Paez was a little bit of fella, a tiny Mexicano. Jorge Paez, who used to dress in crazy and who could fight. He was a tough guy, uh, but a clown. And Macho Camacho was a clown and a tough guy. Kick your ass. So there's been a lot of clowns in the rings over the years. Prince Nassim was a tough guy and a clown. Uh, Riddick Bowe, who you would probably never call a clown to his face, follows me on Twitter. Hi, Riddick. Uh, was a big clown. And he idolized Muhammad Ali and you know, worked some of Muhammad Ali into his act. And he was a guy that you would never call a clown to his face. But there's always been a circus act with clowns and freaks. In the ring and behind the scenes, believe me, in boxing, having been ringside at over 50 fights in Vegas over the years, with a wink and a nod to the palace in Dallas where I went to see Antonio Margarito and Manny Pacquiao fight. That was incredible. It was a beatdown of epic proportions. And I also was once at Madison Square Garden to watch Miguel Cotto fight Sergio Martin. And that was uh, an outstanding experience. But 48 out of my 50 championship fights were in the great city of Las Vegas sitting ringside. It's a privilege to watch all these fights. But there were plenty of 
circus elements involved in any of the stories I have going to Vegas. And there, there's a circus atmosphere, period, that's always been around Floyd Mayweather based on, and he's not even trying to be a clown. When he's serious, uh, he's funny, and he doesn't even know it. He's the guy that I always say you always know when he's lying, when his lips are moving, which is an old, lame cliche. And you know I don't like old, lame cliches. But nothing, there's no lame cliche in the history of lame cliches that fits better than he's only lying when his lips are moving. That fits better with Floyd Mayweather than that cliche. I always know when he's lying. It's usually when his lips are moving. And I have never been a fan of the man, but we cannot argue with his talent. And he's made a fool out of me for years and years as I picked against Floyd Mayweather because I always did a lot of sports talk radio with my heart. And I can't live life or talk into a microphone any other way. And because I didn't think... Floyd Mayweather was rich in character, and I always thought of him as rather phony. That, and he's got baggage and trauma from his childhood, which I, for which I have great empathy. And I bet I would like him in person despite these flaws, but it's my job as a bloviator into microphones to say how I feel or you're going to recognize any inauthenticity. So I've always tried to see the best in people and avoid anything too vicious in sports talk radio. But Floyd Mayweather, I always thought, was a bit of a phony, especially with, you know, when your nickname is money, but you have money trouble, I always thought that was something worth talking about. There's an irony there. And so I would ask questions, and he never liked me because I would ask questions about his money trouble, and he hated it. You know, he wanted to be thought of as a rich guy. And if he, was, if he owed back, back taxes, which he all, perpetually does, and he's having cars repossessed, which he perpetually does, those are facts, not gossip or rumors. You can Google that shit. Um. I would ask him questions about money. Oscar De La Hoya, when he was promoting him, part of the deal was Oscar would pay his taxes, back taxes, in order that the IRS wasn't sitting in the locker room after fights saying, where's the money? So that happened quite often, and that's why for quite a while, instead of fighting Manny Pacquiao, who wasn't represented by Golden Boy, that... Floyd Mayweather was fighting De La Hoya's promoted fighters like Shane Mosley and other dull fights that we had, Victor Ortiz. It's because Oscar De La Hoya owned Floyd Mayweather because Oscar De La Hoya paid Floyd Mayweather's taxes. So Floyd was Oscar's employee for quite a long time. And if you pointed that stuff out, ah! Are you in debt to Oscar De La Hoya? I once asked Floyd Mayweather because I already knew the answer. To the, like a good lawyer, I already knew the answer to the question before I asked it. And Floyd almost took my head off, and so did Al Heyman and other promoters ripping off credentials around my neck for asking a question to a guy 
whose nickname is Money. And I asked the guy whose nickname is Money a question about Money. And I got in a lot of trouble. HBO was mad at me for asking Money a question about Money. The promoters and Al Heyman, who's kind of a Machiavellian character behind the scenes in boxing, ripped the credentials off, off my neck tried to intimidate me for asking money, a question about money. That's when I knew I had the facts right. Uh, because, and that's, that's also the same day I realized newspapers were in big trouble. I had two sources, the USA Today and another boxing writer that I deeply respected. So I went with it. And asked Floyd Mayweather the question about back taxes and Oscar paying his taxes. And he lost his mind. And it was, uh, I, my, my source was in USA Today. But it let me know on that night, about 10 years ago, that people, <laughs> people weren't reading newspapers anymore. Hi, this is Pam Oliver, and you're listening to JT and the Brick. <laughs> Episode 94 of our award-winning podcast. There's two kinds of people in this world. The normal people who don't like the sound of their own voice. They hate hearing it on an answering machine. Remember answering machines? And they hear, hate hearing it into a tape recorder, any kind of recording device. They want no part of hearing their own voice because most people, 99.9% .9 of people, do not like the sound of their own voice. And then there's me. <laughs> there's people who love the sound of their own voice. What is that affliction? Where does it come from? How does it happen? Going back in the hot tub time machine about 10 years ago, we had a producer at Fox Sports Radio, Robert Guerra. He was at the time he was an editor. He was a highlight editor and he would sit behind me while I worked at Fox Sports Radio. Not an easy place to work because I'm loud. And I was hosting with JT and anchoring uh, your updates at the top and the bottom of the hour with scores and highlights. So when I wasn't on the air talking to JT about whatever was happening in the world of sports that day, during commercials, I was writing the updates for the top and the bottom of the hour. I was doing a lot of heavy lifting for the United States of America on over 270 affiliates. When JT and I were on, we were the largest nighttime syndicated talk show, sports, news talk, anything in the history of the United States of America, which includes Guam, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, and Alaska, and we had affiliates on all those states, commonwealths, and territories. And one night, Robert Guerra, sitting behind me, said, at what point in your life did you realize that you loved the sound of your own voice? And I loved the way he phrased it, because it was organic, the way he phrased it. He wasn't saying is an insult it wasn't a barb it wasn't a quip it was a sincere question from his soul that he asked and i love the way he asked it because it was a perfectly phrased question when directed at me 
And I didn't know the answer right away because it had never been phrased that way. And the answer, I hope you will find interesting because it's always fun in life, connecting the dots backwards to what got you where you are. As Mr. Voice Guy, Radio Guy, News anchor, sports anchor, talk show host, voiceover guy, voice of the best damn sports show, period, McDonald's and IHOP, etc. So much voice work over the years. And playing with microphones and tape recorders has always been my thing. How did it happen? Well, first of all, the, the first time I ever put on a little suit and tie to go to a funeral, I was four. And it was my father's funeral. I was four, my brother was six. My dad in the box was 31. My mother was 30. And my mother had two years of college under her belt. And she went back to college after my dad died so she could become a teacher, so she could be out of the house at the same time as her two little boys that she had to raise alone. And so she would also come home at the same time because most people work nine to five and kids go to school nine to three. So she wanted to be home at 3.30 when we got home. So that's how she, that was a method to her madness. So she fell in love with her new passion. My mother and father were professional dancers before that. Her new passion was she was a reading specialist and she ended up getting her master's and worked on her doctorate in reading disorders, dyslexia, alexia, etc. And a lot of times when I would come home from school, there'd be a little boy there, my age usually, at the kitchen table that, you know, the parents maybe were embarrassed that their kid was having a reading problem and my mother was the reading specialist and it was kind of a, kind of a cool secret that I would have with that kid at school because sometimes it would be a kid from my school sometimes it would be a kid who wasn't very nice to me but then because of that secret and because we got to spend time together as kids I would become friends with that kid and keep his secret for him about his reading issue that my mother would fix and because my mother was a reading specialist my before my brother and I ever went to kindergarten she made sure she taught us how to read she didn't trust the schools to do it and since it was her calling why not so we would sit on the end of the couch my brother and I at age four before we went to school and we would learn how to read with the C. John Run books my brother was a natural student he was older he was more mature graduated third in his class eventually in high school and he was easy to raise and easy to teach how to read because he would sit there and learn and read until he learned. I, on the other hand, didn't want to sit still for a minute, so she had to bargain with me and tell me five minutes, and then when the alarm goes off, you can stop. So she would set it for 15 because a four-year-old doesn't know what five minutes is, and we would work on my reading. But she not only taught us how to read, but she wanted the words to come alive. We couldn't sit there and say, see, John, run, run, John, run, 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 run. No, we couldn't do that. We were not allowed to do that. She said, you have to make those words come alive. Read it with expression. It can't sound like you're reading when you're reading. 
out loud. Make those words come alive, Tommy. So instead of doing it that way, I had to say, see John, run, run, John, run, 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 run. So that's how I was taught how to read, to make sure that it never sounded like reading. And when you connect the dots backwards, how long in my life have I been doing that as a profession, taking words on a piece of paper and deciding to tell you about bet online and that it's the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. It's got to sound like I'm talking, not like I'm reading. Bet Online has you covered for all the news, the scores, the odds. You know, it's the best way to place your bets. And it, what's really cool about Bet Online is it's free to sign up. See, my mother taught me how to read that way, where the words never sound like you're reading. And my mother, a big Notre Dame football fan, but not a not a wagerer. But if she was a wager, I mean, she had, she'd been to Monte Carlo when she was a young newlywed with my dad, and he was in the Army, and they were in Europe. So she would gamble. She'd play bingo. <laughs> and, you know, if bet, my mother was a law-abiding citizen, and now that it's legal online, my mother would go to betonline.ag and sign up. You know, if my mother did sign up today, she would get a 50% welcome bonus on her first deposit, as will you. If you go to Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. So that's how the madness started. And at eight years old, I, I, I was doing stand-up comedy as a ventriloquist. $5 a pop at birthday parties and other schools. Since my mother worked in the schools, I'd go to various functions at different schools and entertain in their auditoriums. And at nine years old, I participated in the Eldridge Park Talent Contest. And, but the exact moment, the exact moment that I fell in love with my own voice, I mean, that, that's the background on how I took words off a piece of paper and made them come alive. And eventually I did that with comedy. And I started a, doing a stand-up act when I was eight years old as a ventriloquist. So when my mother and I would write these five-minute comedy routines with my dummy Danny, and I would perform ventriloquist routines and comedy shows at birthday parties, etc., at eight years old. And in the summer between third and fourth grade, I'm eight, turning nine, I entered the Eldridge Park Talent Contest. And doing stand-up comedy at eight as a ventriloquist. I walked out onto that stage. There's a massive crowd there. Well, for Elmira, that means, you know, a hundred people or something probably, right? Seemed massive to me because I was only this tall. And I sat down on my stool with Danny the dummy. 
and I spoke into a microphone for the first time that was set up on this enormous sound system. When I heard my voice come out of those speakers, it was like Shangri-La. <laughs> and from that day on, I became obsessed with microphones, amplifiers, and the sound of my own voice. And now you know the rest of the story. Thank you for listening to the JT and Looney podcast powered by Bet Online. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.